Thank you, James. It's great to be here. Um, by the way, the war with Babylon, it's out of print now, but it's going to be abridged and uh, under a name, uh, which I think I'm going to call it Babylon Anew. So I'm trying to drive the point home is that this isn't just a subject that you can read about in your Bible, you can have your head full of the knowledge, but it's been involved in you and your family and the generations before that and, in, and influenced you and your church and your neighbours and your street and your church vastly more than you think. But until you see it, you don't really combat it. Until you see its nature of sorcery, you just take lots of things that happen. Well, that just happened. That's the way people are like. But there are spiritual movements and undercurrents that are undermining so many churches. You can see it in the church C of E. They're now preaching the doctrines of demons and they think they're doing God's will, God's work. Incrementally, all this stuff's moved in and incrementally stuff moves into churches and soon they're dead, absolutely dead. You can go in some parts of why I live in Norfolk and you can go, say, from Kingsland to Norwich and there may be one or two, three, four live churches, but there may be 200 dead ones and they didn't know they were going to die. But they were killed, not because somebody came along and said, I'll shoot you if you go to church. But why don't you look at things this way? Don't you think that Bible verse is rather harsh and should be reinterpreted? You know, send in a few false brothers who have head knowledge but no heart knowledge. And the church is killed. And that is a di distinct strategy. And until you see that, you will succumb to it or you'll be in despair as to why the church doesn't respond. So I wrote this book, um, and it's going to be, as I said, abridged smaller. It's quite thick, you see. Nobody reads big books anymore. And, um, and I hope, hopefully, a bit wiser, but the whole objective is to provoke people to try and understand what is actually going on in their own backyard, because there's an awful lot more going on in their backyard than they ever dreamt of. Okay, that's the book, because I was uh, advertised to somebody who wrote this book. I thought I'd better give you a peep at it. Now, the title of this is The Church is the Presence of Jesus. Now, there are many, many churches out here I must mention some of them, who believe in Jesus, all right? And they're dead as dodos. You know this, the Anglican Church believes in Jesus, in some sense or other, but what's happened, they've recreated Jesus into their own image, or the image that the devil wants for them, and the presence isn't there. Well, they read the Bible every day, probably many times every day, and the Word of God has no impact on them. And they're not receiving it, there is a blockage in their hearts or a reinterpretation of it. And the whole objective of this talk now is to take some theological stuff, biblical stuff, and make it alive and real. Because like the Anglican Church, we can have all the Bible stuff in the world or the Methodists and all the rest of it. And you can have lots of evangelical churches out there who know their theology, uh, crossed all their T's, dotted all their I's. Their theology is good, but they're dead. They can know the Bible backwards, but they're dead. 
what happens is they become judgmental. I know what the truth is. You don't believe this doctrine like I do or that doctrine like I do. And so they become the accusers of the brethren. They become not only dead themselves, they become killers. Because knowing what the Bible says is insufficient. It's necessary, but it is insufficient. Because what it's got to have, people have got to have, is a heart that receives this knowledge so that they're transformed by this knowledge. And the difference between a dead church and a live church is not the presence of the Bible, but it's the presence of a heart that will seek God and say, God, I want you to breathe on me what you've breathed out in this book. Because if he doesn't breathe on you, you've got no life. All right? You're as dead as a dodo. And what is worse, you become a problem because you go around and say, I'm a Christian and I believe all this correct doctrine, and then you cannot exhibit life. So you exhibit, in effect, death. You become critical, judgmental, and you're a pain, and you're not an asset to the church. Quite the reverse. So, you know, God breathed, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. James spoke about this the other day, by the week. God, says the scripture was God breathed out. God breathed it out. But he you know, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. God has to then take the Bible and breathe it into you so that when you read the Bible, you hear something. It says, the words that I have, this is Jesus, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. No spirit, no life. You can have all the words you, you can muster. It makes not a jot of difference. And that's the difference between a church that has the word and the spirit or a church that just has the, the word or, or, or even worse, a church that seemingly thinks they just have the spirit because then they've got no word to tell them if the spirit is the spirit of God or the spirit of the enemy. Okay. And we know that the truth will set you free. That's experiential. Oh, I know that I've been set free because I've read the Bible. No. Some of the biggest and most... Uh, you know, you can go down to the theology departments, seminaries all over the country. They read the Bible. They read books about the Bible. They can quote it to you in Greek, Aramaic, in any language you care to mention. But they are dead. They are not set free. The Bible is necessary, but it's not sufficient because the Bible is breathed out by God. And unless you let God breathe that word into you, you'll be a problem. Okay? God breathed out. So I'm going to try, I mean, if you look at, I was reading the other day, it was about um, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. God can, you know, compliments them on their good things, but you've left your first love. He wasn't ticking them off because their theology was wrong or they didn't read the Bible enough, the scriptures. He was ticking them off because they'd left their first love. And he said, if you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand. In other words, your church won't exist. I'm taking your lampstand away because the lampstand was a picture of the church. So that went to show these people were not receiving from God from the very words that they were uh, absorbing and reading every day. They weren't doing that. The church at Sardis, I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Now, he wasn't correcting them on their theology. He was saying, your hearts are cold. There's a few of you who have not defiled their garments. In other words, they had fallen into sin and they didn't know it. 
because without the Holy Spirit, you will have no conviction of sin, and you can read about it all day long. That's why churches that read Bibles are still in sin, because they don't, because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And if you take the Holy Spirit and have no experience of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, it won't make any difference to you. It'll only make you self-righteous. Okay. There's a verse in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Don't bother turning it because I've got it here and I'll read it out to you. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Contemplate the Lord's glory. Are being transformed in his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. You want to be transformed? You contemplate the Lord's glory. Comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And he has breathed out the Bible. So you go to the Bible and you expect the Holy Spirit to breathe out its contents to fashion your life. You start to behold the Lord's glory and you repent. Now, just as a small aside in this, I haven't been very well the last few weeks. I was either some sort of, uh, might have been a COVID, a gastrointestinal thing, or maybe I poisoned myself eating some food that had been left around too long and all the rest of it. It doesn't matter. But in that time, I didn't eat very much because I had no appetite whatsoever at all. I was sick and all the rest of it. I found myself gazing upon, this is so, so powerful for me, on the, the holiness of God. Now, I never used to like the idea of the holiness. Why? There's a load of thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, all the time. It was like oh, the biggest killer in my life because <laughs> I was trying to be holy and all the time there was a whole list of understanding of holiness and I couldn't match up to any of it, okay? It was a terrible thing. I found myself peering into... I was just standing there a lot of the time or sitting there staring into space, becoming aware of the holiness of God. Do you know what amazed me by it? It was alive. The, the holiness of God was living. It was alive. I've never seen the Holy Spirit, the holiness of God, alive anymore. I've been able to define it, preach about it, everything else. It was living and it was sort of like there, full of life, wants to embrace you. It's almost as if it had a personality because the holiness of God has a personality because it's God. God isn't segmented into all his attributes and you can separate them out and get to know one but not the other. He's a unitary being, and it's amazing. The holiness of God is alive. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And when you see it, you want it beyond anything. You want to embrace it. You, you, you give up anything for it. You, if you had, you know, the, like the merchant who found a pearl of great, great price, and he sold everything else, all the rest of his pearls, I want that one. Or the, the, the farmer who, or the guy who found a treasure in a field sold everything and bought that field. You want it. And so the thing that everybody sort of thinks, oh, that's a serious issue. No, the holiness of God is alive. And when you see it, it's transparent. It's pure. And you want it more than anything else in your whole life. Paul says, I consider everything else compared to a loss, as a loss compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that's, just, that's the way it is. When you meet Jesus, suddenly everything else fades into the background. You want him, but this is experiential, if you see what I mean. But it happens because the word of God is working in you. The word of God is living and active, living and active, not just there for you to read and think, wow, I know that now. No, you don't. It's living and active. How do you know it's 
Uh, it's working in you. It's living and active, like a double-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit. That's getting to the very centre and core of you. All right? And it's uh, setting you free and transforming you. So what I'm going to talk to today is um, the church as the presence of Jesus. Now, I want to go through briefly through two descriptions of the church in the Bible. Now, there are other descriptions. I'm going to go through the church as the body of Christ and the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of Christ. Now, there's other descriptions, the bride of Christ or the flock, or you can probably name many yourself. I want to focus on these two. And I'll read out a few verses, not many. These few, first few verses are about the body of Christ. So I want to make this real. I want to make this, because you all know the church is the body of Christ, right? I'm trying to tell you something you already know, but eventually when I've gone through these verses, I want to try and make Jesus' presence real as the head of the church and as the God in his temple, okay? Ephesians 1, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love, we, grow up to, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual, Individual part, individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love. He's now, he's talking of bodies. And he, uh, Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Talks about people not far, holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So growth is transformation. Growth is not growth in your theology. Most people's theology can be formed uh, in a matter of years or certainly less than that. But this is a growth, and we're able to grow up into all aspects into him, and that as a result of being anointed by the, uh, reading the anointed word of God. Now, the temple. A temple is a place in which God resides, Okay. And uh, there are temples in every religion. They go there, they worship their God, go home again, and all the rest of it. And yet that word temple, that word often translated, is, I suppose in the, literally is often called house or sanctuary, is a reality. And it goes all the way back to the tent in the wilderness. Okay? But look, look at this. This is a tent, all right? It's a living, living place. Then the, this is uh, Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is once they'd set it up, all right? Got everything in place. Everybody was in place. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Oh, right. The glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. And throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there it was 
in it by, by uh, was fi- and there it was fire in it by night and the sight in the sight of all Israel. So they had this living experience of the presence and the glory of God. Now take note of that because we're going to come back to this living experience of the glory of God. Now later on, of course, the tent goes away and you have Solomon's temple. Now, when they built this temple and got it all finished, just like they'd done with the tent in the, in the desert, said 1 Kings 8. Now, it happened that when the priests came out of the holy place, because they'd got everything in order, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Living experience of the glory of God. These are experiences they would not forget, okay? Go to Ezekiel. This is all the way through history, all the way through church history. Ezekiel 43. Then he led me to the gate. This is a different sort of temple. It's Ezekiel describing. If you look at the very end of Ezekiel, he describes this temple which is built in Jerusalem. It's not like built according to the Mosaic Covenant. It's looking ahead. Many people see it as a millennial temple, however you regard it. Uh, And Ezekiel says this, this he saw in a vision. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Difficult to forget this, isn't it? And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to me to bring the city to ruin. And, and the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of Yahweh came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east. And later on he mentions again, the glory of, of Yahweh filled the house. So we're having a temple because God resides in his temple. So he resi- resides in the, the tent, he res- resides in Solomon's temple, which is made of big stones and, and all the rest of it. Now, we move on to the next stage. Jesus calls himself a temple. He answered them and said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was referring, of course, to his own body, called himself a temple. And then we later on read the church is a temple. That's us, we're a temple. Oh, that means God dwells in our midst, does it not? Yes, it does. Or do you not know that your body, he's talking about individual bodies here, but corporately it's the same, because we're all living stones being built together to be a temple unto the Lord, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The God in the temple owns the temple. Okay? Do you not know, it says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that you are God's temple? It's repeated. He wants us to know this. When you find in the Bible a particular doctrine is repeated again and again and again or injunction or commandment, it's because God knows it needs repeating. And why? Because we're apt to forget it or underrate it. He wants us to know about this, all right? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God's temple, notice your body is God's temple, It belongs to him. You don't own it. You don't own your bodies, by the way, folks. And nobody owns this church except Jesus Christ, okay? That is just a fact. And, you know, that means you can't do what you want when you want because you're not in charge, 
okay? That God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone wants to destroy God's temple, God will destroy him. Wow! So people who said about trying to destroy God's church, you know what it says about them? They'll be destroyed. For God's temple is holy. That's you, me, and the church, holy. And you are that temple. It's an interesting thing that from the time of Jesus onward, the temple function sort of changed. I don't mean because they just didn't get animal sacrifices. But when you went to a sacrifice in the tent or in Solomon's temple, you took your stuff, you know, your bull or your sheep, lambs, pigeons, you name it, goats, you took them and blood ran. An awful lot of blood ran. If you look at how many sacrifices there were in when Solomon initiated the temple, I, I don't know, the place must have been that deep in blood. You know, it was so much blood ran. When you come to Jesus, blood ran. We don't, every time we have communion, we're talking about running blood. We're talking about death, wounds, and blood pouring out onto the floor. But when they pierced his side, what happened? Out came blood and water. Now, we as Christians, who are also temple of the Holy Spirit, we're the next stage because Jesus is in heaven. We celebrate communion and we say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I've died on that cross. Jesus was our substitute, but I am united with Jesus in his death on that cross. It's as if I was up there and my blood was poured out, but he took my place in doing that. So blood flows for the Christian. We celebrate that in communion. The blood, the, the wine that we drink, the cup which we drink, is it not the, the blood of Christ, right? But what did Jesus also said? He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So like Jesus, blood and water came out of him. So we too are associated with blood and water. That water is life out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living life-filled water that's a description of the church and when you look at Ezekiel's temple to go back to Ezekiel 43 again you find that when you went into that temple uh, you took uh, your sacrifices they were sacrificed loads of blood ran you weren't allowed to go out of the same gate you went in so you came in the north gate, took sacrifices. You had to go out by the south gate. What does it say? Flew out, came out of the south side of the temple after the blood had been shed, a river of living water. And it flowed towards the uh, Dead Sea and made everything alive. Because now from the time of Jesus, it's not only blood, it's life. And it flows, it's living. So you find churches that they are full of the Bible, but there is no life. They might as well be in the days of the Old Testament before life came with Jesus. So a sign of a good church is they know all about blood, loads of it, but they also know an awful lot about life, which gets deeper and deeper and deeper and which heals the sick. Because the trees that grew by the side of it, their leaves were for the healing of the nations. Comes a very, very powerful picture. So, we looked at two things briefly by looking at some scriptures. 
the body of Christ. And so that means that we are Jesus on earth. And we also looked at the temple of God, which is Jesus dwelling in us. So in effect, Jesus on earth. So the church is the presence of Jesus on earth. No presence, no Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. See, if you haven't got Jesus, you haven't got the way, you haven't got the truth, you haven't got the life. You're not the church. Finished. Over and done with. You notice that all the times in the Bible when the temple was destroyed, right, like at the time of the Babylonian exile or AD 70 when Titus, the general, came and they destroyed the whole lot, the temple was destroyed because God had left. And think of all the churches that destroyed, because God has left. When God leaves, the enemy can come in and take it all over. And it's happened thousands of times in our own country. Most of the church is unaware that this is God acting. This isn't just, oh, well, people aren't interested in religion anymore. No, this is God acting. He's left. The enemy takes over. They just be turned into mosques or apartments or curiosities. All listed buildings. It should be Ichabod, listed Ichabod. Oh no, look at our lovely church. It goes back to the 12th century. Who cares? It's just a pile of rocks. It's given life to nobody. It might have done once, but it's just a pile of rocks. You know, in uh, Exodus 33... Moses is talking to God and he said, my presence, well, God says this, my presence, presence, shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he, that's Moses, said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Indeed, how then can it be known that I have found, found favour in your sight? I and your people, is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? So, no presence, no distinction between us and the world. Nobody will know that the church is here. Oh, they might see we are a church and think the church is an old building where people go around in robes and, and uh, chant, uh, as Shakespeare put it, chant faint, faint hymns to the cold and fruitless moon. They're probably doing that anyway. <laughs> but um, so there you have it. So that ultimately then, we are people of the word, but we are people of the revelation of the word, the living word. So everything about the church, therefore, is supernatural because Jesus is in heaven and by his Holy Spirit, which makes things supernatural, he is here in our midst as a supernatural being. Anything outside the supernatural, forget it. The world can do it. So the effectiveness of the church then is what? It's actually hearing, abiding, responding to the Holy Spirit as he reveals the truth of the scripture. No response, no abiding, no hearing, and you haven't got a church. You know, in Colossians 2.19, Paul says this, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize of life 
not holding fast to the head. So what does he say about people who are not holding fast to the head? They're defrauding themselves. Well, that's about the dumbest thing you can possibly do, isn't it? Defraud yourself. You know, you might want to defraud somebody else, but you defraud yourself. And what do you do of your prize of life? Well, that's the biggest defrauding in the, on the planet. You can't get a bigger defraud than that. Or you can defraud, um, you know, all the big banks of the world. But that's just money. This is life, eternal life. And people are defrauding themselves. How are they doing that? They're not hearing. They're not abiding. They're not responding to the Spirit of God. So everybody out there who's a Christian out there who thinks, well, I'll have a certain amount of commitment. I don't really think I'll have much more commitment. Well, they haven't met Jesus in a very realistic way anyway. But they're defrauding themselves. And you know who else they're defrauding? They're defrauding their husbands and their wives and their kids because they're exhibiting the flesh, and of the flesh you reap, reap destruction. They're defrauding their neighbours who are not going to see the glory of God in their lives. They're defrauding their church because they come into the church and they've got half the world with them. So they're defrauding Jesus who saved them. Goodness me, it can't get worse, can it? You can't defraud Jesus. You can't without suffering. Every, you know, when, you, when Jesus speaks, everybody changes. Literally everybody changes. You respond and you say, yes, Lord. God, by his Holy Spirit, changes you. You say no, and you resisted the Holy Spirit. And your soul has thereby resisted the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you become a slave to resistance. You've changed. Everybody changes every time the word of God goes forth. His word goes forth, and it accomplishes all that it was sent out to do. You resist it, and you will find out that the word of God says that if you are of the flesh, you will reap destruction. You defraud yourself and you reap destruction, not just to yourself, as I said, but to everybody you meet. You become a poor testimony. You become worse than um, a poor testimony. That's why it says in, uh, to the uh, uh, people who refuse, who cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, be better if they had a millstone put around their neck uh, and be cast into the depths of the sea and drowned. That's how serious Jesus takes it. We tend to think, oh, sin is just a sort of fairly light thing. You can just say repentance and everything is well again. No, you've got a trail of destruction behind you sometimes. It is deadly, deadly serious. So we can, if Jesus, we either run to him or essentially we run away from him. And, um, and we often do this because we want comfort. We want a fairly easy life. We, want, we like our comforts and all the rest of it. And so we swap these illusory benefits for an eternal reward. That is defrauding yourself, seriously defrauding yourself. Because when you get there to the day of judgment, when God is handing out all the rewards, you'd think, oh, I wish with all my heart I'd love this wonderful God more than I ever did. I, I accepted the sort of a low level of Christian life that me and my family were comfortable with or my friends could stand. And the result was is I've swapped a few illusory benefits for eternal blessings. That's the dumbest thing you could ever possibly do. I believe you, me, when you know how long eternity is and how glorious your reward is, that is dumb, that is dumb and dumber, you know? 
So don't disable your church. Don't disable, you know, a body. Getting back to the body. If you, the body, the arm or the leg or the fingers, don't behave, what, do what the head is saying, you've got a disabled person. Essentially because they can't walk, they can't do this, they can't do anything. So you resist the Holy Spirit and you produce disability. You exhibit disability. And nobody wants to be disabled. But you exhibit disability. And you will end up disabling your family, disabling your... You see, I spend more time with my family than... And I couldn't really care too much about all the prayer meetings and everything else. Uh, you're disabling your family. Because I want to bless my family. No, you're disabling your family. You can't help your family by resisting the Holy Spirit. If you want to disable the church, disable anybody, it's simple. There's one rule. Resist the Holy Spirit. You've guaranteed that you will disable whatever, whoever comes your way. In. You will rob them. You will defraud them. You will take from them something that you can give them. Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Why? Because he knew the, the gospel was the power of God unto salvation, eternal salvation for all who believe. He didn't want those people to meet him and go away shortchanged, defrauded, because he could have given them the words of eternal life. Okay. Now, by the way, there's a great cloud of witnesses <laughs> out there, up there, and they see everything. So it's embarrassing to resist the Holy Spirit because everybody up there is saying, there they go again. If there's any groaning in heaven, it's, it's, it's the great crowd of witness. It's when they see lots of God's people cold-hearted because they want a few sensuous pleasures in this life. It's not worth it. This life is too short to throw away eternal life and all its blessings on a few, you know, comforts. Now, I want now to get on to a second stage of this. And that is... Who is this Jesus? Let's try and make Jesus more powerful, attractive, shall we? How do we do that? Because you all read about him, you know the Bible's backwards and all the rest of it. Now, in Exodus 34, now it happened when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai. This is our Moses. And the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. And Aaron and the sons of Israel saw Moses, and behold, his skin shone, and they were afraid to come near. Verse 35. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses shone, and Moses would veil his face when he went in to speak with God. Living experience of the living God, right? Now, I want to, there's a few passages I want to read out which are living experiences of the living God. And then I'll come to the point I'm trying to make through all this. Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. All right, I've read that out already. Again, exper experiential. In Exodus 33, then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And God shows him part of his glory. Can't see the whole thing because that would kill him. All right? Did Moses need these experiences? You bet he did. Did they transform him? You bet he, you bet he did. He was transformed. Isaiah 6, another experience. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord. This is a guy who'd read the scriptures many, many times. Sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. 
Two, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, while the, whole, while the house of God was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Very experiential. Ezekiel has the same. He's in Ezekiel chapter 1. Then I saw from the appearance of his loins, this is the appearance of a man who was sitting above the expanse in a throne that looked like, made of sapphire, like something like the gleam of glowing metal with the appearance of fire all around it and from the appearance of his loins and downwards, I saw something with the appearance of fire and there was a radiance all around him. Another big experience. Did Ezekiel need it? Yes, he did. Did it transform him? Yes, he did. It would be amazing if he hadn't. All right? Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And I saw this. And I fell on my face and heard of a sound of a voice speaking. That's Ezekiel. Later on, he had a similar experience. And he fell on his face. In Daniel, he had seized the Ancient of Days, who dwells in Jesus. His clothing was white, white like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheel, the wheels were a burning fire, and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from him. Another amazing experience. Daniel, he has a vision. A great terror falls on the people. This is in Daniel 10. A great terror falls on the people near him. A great terror. These are non-believers. They're terrified of the presence of God, okay? And they ran away to hide themselves. So I alone remained and saw this great vision that appeared, and yet no one, no might remained in me, for my outward splendour turned to death, deathly pallor, and I retained no might. I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John, they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what does it say? Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. You turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 2. We don't, it's a, I, the God of glory revealed himself, appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, and then he spoke to him. The God of glory appeared. Different from the words, the God of glory appeared. And you see that Stephen has the same experience where he's been stoned. It's almost like he didn't notice he was being stoned because he said, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and he fell asleep. Amazing, isn't it? And then you see that Paul on the road to Damascus or in 2 Corinthians 12, he's talking about, I know a man who 14 years ago was carried up to the third heaven and heard things that are inexpressible. All these experiences. And then the last one, Revelation chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in verse 17, then I saw him and I fell at his feet, a dead man. Now, it's great these guys had these experiences, isn't it? They all knew the Bible. They knew it very well. There's nothing in these experiences that contravened the Bible at all or any doctrine at all. Now, it transformed them. Did they change? Yes. How much did they change? Amazingly, they changed. Did they ever forget this? No. 
Change them forever. Yes. Ah, then we say, oh, it's all very, for, very well for them. They had these wonderful experiences. I haven't had one of these wonderful experiences. All right? Now, what if you did have one of these wonderful experiences? Just imagine you had an experience. Jesus, hair white as like wool, face glowing better than the sun, eyes like flaming fire, voice like the sound of rushing waters, burnished, the rest of his body like burnished gold, uh, bronze glowing in a furnace. You had this experience, right? Would it change you? You bet it would change you. Right now, let's try something. How would it change you? Think. In what way would you be different? You wake up the next morning. How would you be different? How would you relate to your wife, your husband, children, differently? Would you be more gracious, kind, loving, prayerful, encouraging? Would you have them in your hearts ten times more? Yes, you would. What about your neighbours? Would they notice that your face just sort of shone a bit? What about your work colleagues? They say, have you, have you noticed so-and-so? He's changed, hasn't he? She's changed. What about your church? Would you love your church more? Yeah, you would. Would going to it be a sacrifice? No, the sacrifice would be staying at home. All right? The interesting thing in this is every one of you now knows where you need to change because you've all sensed what you would be like if you met Jesus. You all know where you fall short now so we all know where we need to turn about. That's the basic meaning of the word repentance. Go the other way to turn around. You think, well, okay, <sighs> very good point. have to ponder that deeply, let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. But let's take it a step further. Jesus uh, said in Matthew 20 verse 18, 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the Jesus that Moses met, that Daniel met, that Isaiah met, the apostles met, John the apostle of the apocalypse met, he's in this room at this very moment, now. And that's a fact. So in one sense, you're meeting him. In fact, it's true to say there isn't a single person in this room who is not now within a few feet of Jesus in his glory. We have his word on it. His word never fails. He's in this room and every one of us is within a few feet of the same God who came down on Mount Sinai 
whose glory cloud came down on the tent, on Solomon's temple, exactly the same God who appeared to Daniel and all the rest, the apostles. And he's in the room and his eyes are like flaming fire. His face is beaming brighter than the sun. His voice is like rushing waters. And a sharp double-edged sword comes out of his mouth. And he is right here now. Mind-boggling, isn't it? But it's true. And if it doesn't feel true, it doesn't make any difference. It's true. It's real. He's real. So whether we've had one of these wonderful experiences of Jesus, the head of the church, the God who dwells in his temple, it doesn't matter. Because spiritually, we can sense his presence. And he's here. When I uh, thought of this message, he gave me a one sentence to finish with. Okay? And I don't know who it refers to. First was perhaps all of us. Maybe the people on the internet who are going to see this. And this is the one word sentence he gave me. Some of you are living your lives as if you do not know what your relationship with Jesus is worth. I'll repeat it. Some of you are living your lives as if you do not know what your relationship with Jesus is worth. So I'll leave you with that. May God bless you all. May God bless us all. And uh, I'll pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, breathe like you breathed on the disciples at Pentecost that James spoke about. Lord, make your presence and your glory and your holiness real to everyone in this room and those listening um, on the internet. And make us aware of how beautiful, wonderful, glorious, loving, truthful you really are. And, and show us, Jesus, where our lives are, are exhibiting the sort of ignorance or deadness that defies our acknowledgement of a relationship with you. Let us not be afraid of you, Jesus, and seize up and run away. But let us open our hearts, Lord Jesus, to receive your Holy Spirit, that we may be transformed, that like these people in the Bible, we would never be the same again, ever. That we would be a blessed people and we would be distinguished from all the people of the earth because your presence goes with us. And we don't want to do anything, you to go up with us, unless your presence is with us. Because it's only you that makes the difference between us and the world, the flesh and the devil. We want your supernatural power. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. And bless us, we pray. Amen.